Welcome back to Three Sports Rankers, the sports podcast which aims to deliver the greatest podiums in history in a variety of sporting categories. Last week, Rob was on video games franchises and we really enjoyed uh, recording that one. This very week, nostalgic. Very nostalgic indeed. This week it's me, Callum, and I will be hosting the greatest sporting rivalries, which uh, Rob and Sam didn't sound too happy with. I kept thinking something will come to me. Something will come to me. The, the light will break through and the, my podium will reveal itself. Why the hell did you make this so open? So deep. Like, it is the deepest topic I think we've and had a hundred percent the one with the, the most possibilities. Yeah. I couldn't, you know, we've talked about... You know, Premier League strikers, worst, best, twenty um, first century sport icon, iconic moments. This was unrivaled in regards to what you could choose from, wasn't it? And I kept flip flopping. Lola's here, by the way. <laughs> that's well. That that's the thing I really enjoyed about sort of posing this one as a topic was that there is the opportunity to have sort of two players across a 15-year career in one sport. But there's also the opportunity to have, you know, two franchises or countries or teams or whatever across the whole history of their sport. So I, I, that's that's why I quite enjoyed it, because I wanted to see how you two would stack them together and put them up against each other. And I imagine you probably had to create some sort of parameters for your podiums. I, 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 I initially did and then I <laughs> honestly I've had a bad week <laughs> um, but in the end I just I ended up crowbarring stuff in because of my parameters and I was like no I can't ignore that so I've, I've got three you don't I'm relatively happy about with them, the though. three but I think this is one of the way realistically you could argue a whole hell of a lot Sam's Sam's are you so, more cemented? Yeah, Sam's, Sam's being very quiet, which I, suggests well, I, to me a little bit so of confidence. I, I, well, I, it, it's less. It, yeah, I'm feeling <laughs> quite confident. Says 12 but it's points. more that I haven't made the same mistake of Rob. I left my picking my list till a little bit later, so I had less time. So I didn't have time to procrastinate. I just had to sit down and go. There are my three. You got my podium sorted. Couldn't question yourself. I didn't question myself. I've just got my answers. I've got my uh, reasons behind them, and I'm ready to go. Excellent. Right. Well, on that note, um, we're both still chasing down Rob, Sam. Um, yes. You are currently sitting on twelve points. Thanks for reminding me. I am somehow three points ahead of you, which is a I'm getting a nosebleed from this vertigo that I've got <laughs> um, on fifteen points, and Rob is still. There's daylight I've got, between I've got altitude us. Sickness up yeah, here. there's there's daylight between us. Uh, Rob's on twenty two points. So essentially, Sam, you've got to hope for a good episode here, and then hope that the listeners agree with you as well when they do the listeners' bonus points on Twitter at the end of the episode. But we're going to get cracking with the greatest sporting rivalries. And uh, Rob, you didn't give a single answer last episode, so we're going to start with you and your bronze answer, please. Okay, it is Chrissy Everett. And Martina Navratilova, the greatest rivalry in tennis, and I believe one of the greatest individual rivalries in sport. So they played eighty times, and when you compare that to Federer and Nadal, which obviously massively comes to mind, they've only played fifty times, and the probably more ferocious tennis rivalry of. 
Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe actually only played 14 times. So Ever and Navratilova have a distinct, some argue 12, but it's actually a 16-year span from 1973 to 1988. And in the core 12 years of them, one of them held the world number one spot in every single week for 12 years apart from 23. So in isolation, okay, 23 weeks sounds like quite a long time, but across a 12-year span, that's not much. Well, that's like 1,600 weeks. Exactly. 18 Grand Slams each. That was terrible maths, by the way. <laughs> I just agreed because I didn't have time to do it. Uh, both have 18 Grand Slam singles titles to their name. Perfectly balanced in that regard. And what you've got here is that Everett was this kind of stoic ice maiden whose kind of effortless and errorless ground strokes kind of made her... Well, she was unbeatable at the time until Navratilova came along. And people see this 1978-9 period as the turning point where Navratilova started to edge ahead. She actually leads her 14-8 in Grand Slam meetings, 10-4 in finals. As I mentioned, it's these contrasting styles. Ebert's personality and kind of very consistent game, perfectly countered by the overly emotional Navratilova, her powerful, her serve volley technique that would go on to then dominate women's tennis for a decade. You've also got the element of intriguing dynamics of surfaces. So Ebert dominated on hard and clay, of course, she's queen of clay, with Navratilova getting the best on grass and what was then indoor carpet courts. And the caveat to all this, which is more natural in tennis, as I'm sure Sam would agree, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal are a perfect example of this. Uh, McEnroe Borg now, less so at the time, was this was all encapsulated through an incredibly close friendship between the two that is still last to this day. So actually you've got, although we'll get on to, I'm sure, arguing the case that rivalries are somehow better than others because of the ferocity in them. I actually think, especially in, a, in quite a, and I don't mean this as a sexist term, but a gentlemanly sport like tennis, I find it quite intriguing and interesting, even just at the very least, that you can have such an incredible rivalry when the two have such utmost respect for one another. But the one thing that really stands out for me for this rivalry, which is why I edged ahead of Federer, Nadal, Bjorg, McEnroe, was that 80 times they played and the incredible 18 Grand Slams each and how they dominated women's tennis as a duo for so long. And what it doesn't have, which I'm very aware of, is it wasn't in our lifetimes. It's not something we remember. But I think for those who did live through it, they should or would or could be able to appreciate why I've chosen it above Borg, McEnroe and Federer and Nadal. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, 80 meetings is astronomical did they cross paths when they were both in their prime well this is or, kind of or was, was it sort of Chrissy Everett dominated the first six years and then Navratilova the the, the last six years kind so of so you thing? had this neither were in or out of their peak at that at that time one oh, no, was, superseded was def- the other there was but... definitely a period of crossover where um they you know they were the two best players in that period but there was a period where they were both playing at their peak at the same time um, it wasn't a long period, but there, it was a period, and it was a, a brilliant, brilliant period in women's tennis. 
Excellent. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I openly admit to not knowing very much about tennis full stop, let alone tennis from before I was born. So, But actually, like looking into it myself, I was obviously aware of it. But actually, I was maybe quite aware of how incredible, long-lasting and equal the rivalry was. And it is actually quite rare that you do get that pillar, pillar overlap of in their peak which I think is is quite rare and quite special and and I really really want you know Nadal Federer was one that I instantly went to Bjorn McEnroe actually as well but this knocked them both off for me okay so Sam we've had a tennis answer from Rob are we getting another one from you well it's interesting you just said you don't know much about uh, tennis and especially tennis before your lifetime so you're about to learn some more excellent my bronze is and it's already been mentioned many a time Borg McEnroe um, and it, it, it's, it's totally different to the Navratilova ever um, because it, it's only a period of three or four years really where they overlap but it is without question the most intense tennis rivalry there's ever been it's the, the rivalry that captured the imagination of the world more than any other tennis rivalry Rob's absolutely right they only played 14 times they tied it seven each we'll never know who was the better player you were talking there Rob about the fact that um, with uh, your two, they sort of had a period. Of, one had a period of dominance before, one had a period of dominance after. They had a small window. With this rivalry, their entire rivalry was both of them playing at their peak, and it produced some of tennis's greatest ever matches. In particular, the 1980 Wimbledon final, which to this day is still my favourite tennis match, more so than the 2008 Wimbledon final. But what well, this is what was interesting is you you mentioned sort of. Um, uh, Everett being the ice queen in comparison to Borg McEnroe there was nothing like they were the original fire and ice because Bjorn Borg just this steely Swede never broke his sort of icy exterior and of course McEnroe everyone knows McEnroe the fiery uh, American hothead hot head. exactly they were completely polar opposites but what I really loved is there was this sort of ferocity between them. But they also had this underlying respect for each other. Macaron never behaved better than when he was playing Borg. It's a bit like... The thing that recently reminded me of it was Kyrgios against Nadal at Wimbledon this year. Kyrgios always throws tantrums every match. Against Nadal, he was completely in the zone the entire time because he does have that respect and he just it's wants to true. win more than anything else. And I, I, I think when you look, when, if, if you say to the, your sort of average sports fan, who are the greatest tennis rivals of all time? I think you're right. I think Federer and Nadal come to the fore. But I think Borg and McEnroe are also up there. And I think they're probably spoken about more than Navratilova ever. And yeah. I think the reason for that is because it just captured the... Because it was so small and because Borg retired in 81, there was such that element of what if. Yeah, I agree. It, honestly, it, it, you have there what most people quintessentially view as a rivalry in sport. It's, it's got everything. Peak, you know, ferocity, top of their game, iconic characters. But I, I would actually argue that if you boil down to the absolute intricacies of, of the sport in itself, this was a superior rivalry. And, I'm, and I fully admit that this captured the world's imagination more and you arguably had two characters to, to catch the, the public eye. But I, I, when I saw the numbers and I looked back through the records and I thought the transition from one great to another with an overlap 
I could, I, I honestly, I couldn't put it in. And as I said, I, I had them there. Borg, Macaron, I had Federer, Nadal, but this came in and superseded it because of the amount of times they played, how equal their Grand Slam records were, and the fact that they had this contrasting of styles that overlapped in such a, a special period. And I get women's tennis, especially at that point, was not the headliner that men's tennis was. And I would argue that that maybe has also got a role to play in why it's maybe not isolated as much in the in the grander scheme of things. So I imagine, Callum, you've got two tennis answers to choose from. Apologies there. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'll I, I tell you what, it's, they are two, as, as much as they're similar, they're completely different, yeah. these two answers. Like, I think, you know, Borg McEnroe was, what, 14, 14 matches? 14 it's matches, seven all. yeah. And, you know, I think if you boiled down Ever Navratilova to 14 matches, would their rivalry have been as as good as Borg McEnroe? If you'd put all that quality from their 80 matches down into 14, I think maybe you would have seen a slightly a slightly different rivalry, but because they had that longevity and it was drawn out over, you know, 10, 12, 14 years or whatever it was, that maybe it's you know, they they didn't have that spark to it wasn't maybe as yeah, intense over a short period of time. Yeah, I get what you're that, yeah, that's it, you, your, your kind of debate is basically numbers and longevity against intensity, intensity. and sort of st- that sort of short storyline that just captured everyone's well, imagination. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to have to mull that over over the next four answers and kind of make a decision at the end, I suppose. Um, we've spent about 15 minutes talking about tennis, so is there a chance? <laughs> we move on. Is there a chance we get off it, Rob? Uh, yeah, and you'll be pleased to hear that we're going on to baseball because it's Red Sox against the Yankees. For the story element, as mentioned on this podcast in the past, 1919, Harry Frazee sells Babe Ruth to the Yankees to fund a Broadway musical. And for the next 86 years, Boston win nothing. The Curse of the Bambino set in. The Yankees become the powerhouse of, of baseball. And that all ended in, in that famous night in 2004. But 27 World Series to Boston's nine might suggest an inequality there. But I think you have to look at the numbers. And granted, it's mostly in America and Asia, but watched by millions around the world. A sporting spectacle. Yankees actually have a 54... You're probably aware of all this, Callum, but they've got a 54% win record in the regular season. So granted, that's postseason matches aside but that is a very closely fought contest and then you start adding the elements in which I think really add the layers to this rivalry the cultural divide which I wasn't necessarily quite as aware of Boston is this kind of prosperous education based you know high profile economy lots of art and culture versus New York is this kind of cesspit of overpopulating melting pot of industry and and things like this and the contrast there I think is something which encapsulates American sport more so than sport in this country or or anywhere else it's not as violent as some rivalries which we may get to because obviously in sport as regrettable as it is things can boil over but I did read about some quite nasty instances about 
arrests for murder in 2008. The man was pulled from his car driving through Massachusetts for having New York license plates. In 2010, a Red Sox fan was arrested for stabbing a, man, a, a Yankees fan in a baseball argument. These things add additional layers to a rivalry, I suppose. And I'm also aware that it's had quite a political impact as well. Lots of politicians get caught up in the furore of Yankees Red Sox. Um, I was reading about how in 2007, New York Mayor uh, Rudolph Guilani. Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani. Uh, I knew you'd come in at some point to <laughs> correct, you. correct me. Uh, yeah, Yankees fans said he was rooted for the Red Sox in their World Series showdown with, um, was it Colorado? And that did not go well for him. So I think it's got everything. I'd be interested to see where Sam has gone for his silver. It, it didn't quite make it to gold for me, which we'll get around to. But I think you certainly wouldn't find an American sports rivalry that, that could top this one. You're absolutely right. And that's why it's my silver as well. Oh, well, there we go. Two <laughs> we might, points. We won't be doing 15 minutes on baseball like we did on tennis. I, Can we? <laughs> Unfortunately not. I Anything mean, you want to add, though? Because, I mean, we clearly I mean, you, can't. You, you covered almost everything I had written down. I mean... In fact, I think you literally did cover everything I had written down, aside from where the sort of ferocity and the violence of it started. It was the 1973 uh, match, a clash between... Uh, feel free to correct me if I pronounce these wrong as well. Uh, Thurman Munson and Carlton Fisk. Yep. Two catchers who... Uh, one of them was on third base running to home and just went headfirst into the other one deliberately, started non-field brawl. I mean... And from there, it's, it's pretty much snowballed and it now happens probably more often than it doesn't I would say that you know you could you could almost have put Munson Fisk in as a as an answer of itself as its that's own how rivalry. that's how fierce their rivalry was because they were the two catchers for the team in teams in the 70s and 80s or early 80s and Munson was kind of this all-star for a couple of years and then Fisk came up and just sort of he was the the young buck and the the sort of attractive option playing for the Yankees and Munson just hated it and every time he got an opportunity to slide into home plate or have a pitcher throw at Fisk he would take it because he just hated Fisk that much and you know I think obviously you're both getting two points for this um, for this answer so there's not there's not much point in me adding to it but I think the one thing I would say is and Rob kind of touched upon it is that it's for the best part of 70, 80 years, it was not that close of a rivalry in terms of actual success well, in I baseball. I find intriguing as to why it's, it's had that longevity. And then there must be some, you know, as we've mentioned there, really deep-rooted for it to be maintained while it's such an off-kilter level of success. It's been a real slow build, hasn't it? Just constantly adding logs to the fire and it just gets more and more and more intense until it's reached what it is today. And I think certainly in the last 15 years, as you mentioned, Rob, when they broke the curse of the Bambino in 2004, the sort of parity between the two teams has... I, I mean, I've not really looked into the sort of the 70s, 80s numbers, but... I think the parity between the two teams has never been more similar. Yeah, levelled out somewhat. Absolutely, and I think you know the Yankees. Fortunately, this season are in the playoffs, and the Red Sox aren't. Could well be on their way to their twenty eighth world title, but the you know the Red Sox coming to April next year will have just as good a chance of making the World Series as the New York Yankees will, which is you know was probably unthinkable for a, a, a good period of this rivalry 
in the uh, in the twentieth century. But you're both getting points for it, so I'm going to stop talking about it because I could go on forever. And we're going to go for the first gold answer. We're going to go. I mean, Sam, you didn't really get to argue too much in that go one, on so we'll Hit start with up. you. Head to Argentina, River Plate Boca Juniors, arguably the greatest football rivalry of all time. I think you said there, Rob, you weren't sure why Red Sox Yankees didn't quite make it into gold. I think for me, it just didn't have that familiarity that football necessarily does for us as Brits. And I don't think there's anything fiercer than River Plate v Boca Juniors. So rivalry, much like the last one, spanning over 100 years. Uh, They've met 248 times with Boca winning 88, River Plate 83 and 78 draws. So it has always been close and fierce there's never been it's not been like the Yankees Red Sox where there was a large period of dominance one or the other it's always been close um, known as the Super Classico this is this I really enjoyed this quote from an article in the Observer in 2004 they put it at the top of their list of 50 sporting things you have to do before you die and this is the quote I really liked Derby Day in Buenos Aires makes the old firm game look like a primary school kickabout because for us, I think in, in England, true. we grow up hearing the old firm is yeah. the biggest derby in the world. And then when you actually start to learn more about football in other countries, you realise that just just isn't true. So in terms of that, cult, you were talking about the sort of cultural beginnings of it. Um, both clubs originate from uh, La Boca, which is a working class part of Buenos Aires. But... Uh, River Plate actually then moved to a more affluent district known as Nunes and that's where it became a very cultural, you know, it was the working class versus the rich. That was how it was sold for basically the entire rivalry. Um, and I think the reason it, it was the first that came into my head was because of the prominence of it recently in the, the match last year, the Copa Libertadores final. I mean, when, what a shambles that was. It was it was an absolute shambles. But for me, and I think for a lot of people in, in Europe, it really highlighted quite how ferocious this rivalry really is um, in the fact that the second leg, so the Copa Libertadores final has two legs, the second leg was never played in Argentina because of the fan trouble. Twice they tried to arrange yeah. the game there. Team buses were pelted with stones. Players were injured. It It is ferocious to another level to the extent that the match ended up being played in Madrid yeah, which um, was a complete joke which was a complete joke but I mean it, it it's says the Copa Libertadores the trophy for liberty and freedom and they go and play it in the former oppressors of that country <laughs> in it, their national <laughs> stadium <laughs> I mean, I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of what we were saying with Yankees-Red Sox. It's just been years and years of adding fuel and fuel and fuel and fuel to this fire. It just escalated to the point where I, I don't think you can argue there is a... If you, if you look at a rivalry like I do as, as something which has genuine ferocity and animosity behind it, I don't think there's a bigger one in sport than this. Well, there is. <laughs> it's El Clasico. Super Clasico versus El Clasico. Yeah. And the reason is because, and I fully accept and endorse everything you've just said, granted it's not as insanely ferocious, El Clasico has the two most popular football clubs in the world, the two of the biggest, most dominant, globally recognised clubs in the world, which River and Boca are not. And this is watched by millions and millions around the world, which, unfortunately, River Boca is not. 
Barcelona lead the head-to-head astonishingly 96-95. Can you believe that? How close it's been ever since these two clubs have been in existence. In La Liga, it's close. Uh, Barcelona trailing actually 33-26. to Copa del Rey, 30-19. Champions League European Cup, 13 to Real Madrid, 5 to Barcelona. And as we've mentioned, there are so many other football rivalries that have a recognisable element, whether it be the old firm or Manchester United, Liverpool for the history, Boca River, as we mentioned, or Fenerbahce Galatasaray for the ferocity and the violence of it. Even Brazil, Argentina, even for the kind of iconic on a global stage. England, Germany. But El Clasico, I'm sorry, it has it all. It's got the fierceness, not to the degree, as I mentioned. There's a famous book written, The Story of Spanish Football, by um, Phil Ball, uh, Morbo, the, the Story of Spanish Football. He says that the match, they hate each other with an intensity that truly shocks the outsider, which I think is a nice way of putting it. You've got the, the national political element as well. Two largest cities in Spain, which in the 1930s symbolised the civil war and amplified tensions between the two Areas, Real Madrid, Real as, as very much the right, the elite, the conservative establishment, Barca as the left, the socially mobile, the, the radical side of things. And that actually was flared up again in the last year or so with the Catalan independence. And I was actually there in Barcelona when that was all kicking off. And my God, was it kicking off. Um, you've got the whole stories of intertwined throughout the transfers. Alfredo Di Stefano, for example... Luis Figo, Brazilian Ronaldo, these players that swapped the red and blue for the white, and they still battle over the biggest names today. And we've seen them both try and essentially offload half of their entire squad to try and get Neymar this summer. You've got managerial storylines, the friends to foe element of, of Guardiola Mourinho is becoming increasingly apparent and and, and prominent in in our lifetimes and then the philosophical element as well whether it be Cruyff's on the pitch or Real Madrid's often coming from upstairs and of course the players the individual rivalries within this rival which is why it kind of thrust its way up into gold for me and was never ever uh, going to be superseded okay you've got Di Stefano as I mentioned Puskas Raul Figo Ronaldinho Brazilian Ronaldo but none more iconic than Cristiano Ronaldo versus Lionel Messi, which I accept is not what I'm arguing here. But for 10 years in the El Clasico, the embodiment of this fixture was Cristiano Ronaldo versus Lionel Messi, the greatest indirect sporting rivalries ever. Because they're competing, yes, but they're presence as two world greats on opposite sides of these two teams. Well, that was what I meant at the end of the last episode when I was introducing the topic and saying, you know, you can have teams, you can have countries, you can have teams versus, you know, you can have individuals or you can have individuals within teams. And when I said that, the two people I was obviously mm. thinking of were Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. And but what stood out for me is you've obviously you've got eras of, of players, haven't you, throughout the history of football? You've got Pele, Maradona, you know, Cruyff very much in, in Europe. And sometimes they overlap. But the sustained brilliance of two of the greatest or the greatest ever in such contrasting styles, pushing the other to be the best in the world for 10 years constantly, one in white and one in red and blue, 
we will never ever see that again. And actually, it was what convinced me that El Clasico had to be on the top of the podium, actually, is because you've got the greatest rivalry between two individual football players within what is already an incredibly unrivaled rivalry (laughs) Um, in El Clasico. (laughs) So that's what's done it for me. I think it's got every element, political, cultural, transfers, managers, players, what they're fighting over, established world powers. But the added caveat, which I think you just can't argue against, is Messi versus Ronaldo within the El Clasico rivalry. So. Yeah, I mean, the thing, because obviously it was one that I considered as well. I I thought there was going to be a football one in my list. I thought of that one. I thought of my answer, a couple of others as well. But those were kind of the main two. So I, I felt personally when I was doing my research, I felt that as a European based individual, my knowledge of El Clasico, my awareness of El Clasico was much more than the Super Clasico. So I looked at a ton of lists, which is the biggest football rivalry. And more often than not, it was coming out saying the biggest rivalry between two teams and between two sets of fans is River Plate and Boca. And whether that comes from the fact that actually, because Real Madrid and Barcelona are so big, it has so many fans kind of like me in football, sort of tourist fans, if you know what I mean, who aren't quite as invested. You know, growing up as a, I grew up as a Man United fan, I'm now a Forest fan, but all of that is very sort of half arsed growing up I always <laughs> I always knew as a Man United fan I didn't really like Liverpool but I didn't really understand why I think there's probably a lot of Real Madrid and Barcelona fans out there who are slightly similar whereas I think with Boca and River Plate I think if you're a fan of that team I think you hate that other team and you know exactly why but if you're as, a fan uh, of Barcelona and Real Madrid you hate the other it's just what you're saying is it spans beyond that and I suppose your argument is that yeah, Lola's rummaging, rummaging around. What I suppose you're arguing is that um, because it's become so big, it's diluted the intensity of the a rivalry. A little bit, yeah. We could go on by this for hours, Callum. Yeah. Where are you going? Well, I mean, it's a very difficult decision I've got to. In fact, it's two very difficult decisions I've got to make. I think it's made slightly easier by the fact that both your golds are football and both your bronzes very are comparable. Yeah. So they're they're quite easy to. So after we've had a torrid week, or I have at least, you now get a very. <laughs> Well, I mean, defined you're both decisions. you're both definitely getting two points for the Red Sox and Yankees. Yeah, uh, there's no denying that. We will start. The... Did you did you have an idea of your podium? Nope. No, I okay. did exactly what I do every single time. I let you two let you two do it, and I think the easiest way to do this will be to do the bronze first. And it's going to be a point to Sam for McEnroe versus Borg. I think what took it over the top for me was the intensity of the rivalry. I mean, you can, there's no doubt they were the two biggest names in their sport at the time. You know, women's tennis, Ever Navratilova, and then men's tennis, McEnroe Borg. But I think McEnroe Borg, they only met 14 times. And like Sam said, to have produced a classic like the 1980 Wimbledon final, you know, in one of their 14. And I, I have no doubt that the other 13 were just as intense and just as sort of, um, not classic, but they were just highly as contested. close, highly highly contested. Exactly. That's almost exactly the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> um, just pushes them over the edge. Um, so that's one point for Sam. So technically three points for Sam. So we could see a sweep here. Uh, unfortunately, though, 
it's going to Real Madrid versus Barcelona. And I understand, Sam, the, the intensity of the, the Super Classico rivalry is, you know, it is it is greater than the than the Real Madrid Barcelona rivalry. But I think the thing that takes it over the top for me is that you don't get players going to Boca Juniors and River Plate to play in the Super Clasico. You get players coming to Real Madrid and Barcelona to play in the El Clasico and you know at the highest level. And you know River and Boca have this historic rivalry and you are exactly right like it's the working class of Buenos Aires against the um against the sort of more affluent uh River Plate but I think Real Madrid Barcelona in terms of the political landscape of it is just as um just as intense with you know the royals on in Real Madrid the conservatives and then sort of the sort of Catalan independence um team sort of carrying that banner because of course they have the Catalan flag in their in their badge so I think for that reason it's Real Madrid Barcelona for me over River Plate Boca Juniors but I did I did kind of expect there to be I, well, I kind of expected both of those to be on the podium at some point it's just a shame that they've ended up going up against one another because I think if they'd been against the Red Sox Yankees I, th- I think if you'd had for example Red Sox Yankees first River Plate Boca second I would no question have given you River Plate Boca over Red Sox Yankees because, uh, like I mentioned, the Red Sox Yankees hasn't been that close of a rivalry for the best part of a, a century. So uh, that ends up with the scores at uh, Rob. You get five points for this episode. Sam, three points, uh, which draws you level with me on 15 points for the series. Rob, you've uh, extended your lead somewhat to 27 now, which is a that's more than you scored last series. It is isn't more it? than I scored last series, and that's before listeners' bonus points as well. And the last seri- last episode of the series, which Sam will be presenting next week. Uh, Sam, do you know what your topic is? Oh, I do, and I've gone really rogue with this one. Oh, oh God, hit us up. Is this one where me and Rob are going to have completely different answers? I think so. Rob's going to win so. six And it's going to take some research as well. I would like the best active sports people. That I've never heard of. How are we oh going to know God. if we've not heard of them? This is where it's tough. You ha- I will, basically, what I'm asking you to do is find the three most impressive, obscure sports people. And I, I will mark you down if, if I you've heard, heard of this them. People, but I'm not going to do any research. So the it, thing is, I know you. that you're sort of your your blanket is minority sports over here. Yes, yeah. it is. This exactly. is this is like your blanket knowledge is, I would argue, greater than mine and Rob's. Hundred um, percent. So you could name like I don't know the world motocross champion. I haven't got a clue who the world um, motocross champion. But is. there you go. We Ever heard of a woman who swam from Cuba to Florida? <laughs> <laughs> I heard about her on a podcast actually, yeah. a really good podcast. Good Speaking stuff, of that podcast, that was Three Sports Rankers uh, season two, episode eight. Next week it will be the last episode of the series, so you'll be able to find out. Who got all the listeners' bonus points? Who got the bonus points from the people who suggested uh, topics to us for episodes four, five, and six? Don't forget to tell everyone you know about our podcast. We want as many listeners as possible because, uh, well, we're just driven by our egos. And uh, <laughs> if you could remember to like, subscribe, share, comment, uh, interact with us on Twitter, do whatever you want to do. Uh, and we will be back with Series 2, Episode 9, the final one, next week. 